Yeah, I think the habit probably comes sooner. I bet that's, I feel like it's more like two months. Mm. And then the results from that, it's like poignant at like three months. You're like, wow, okay, that got easier a month ago. I'm not having to think about it as much. And now like, wow, like I'm catching up with what I've just been doing these last three months. Welcome back to another episode of Cultivating Change, everyone. I'm your host, Alex Corey. Today's guest is Lucia Holly. Lucia is a master of social work, clinical mental health, a functional nutritional therapist, and a certified personal trainer. And this episode, we go over a really joyful conversation about taking the pressure off of the pillars of weight loss, of sustainable weight management, and of just instilling healthy habits in general. And that's what she absolutely thrives at. The uh, mental health, the mindfulness, and the self-compassion side of those scientifically backed habits that we all usually want to instill in ourselves just to be the best version of ourselves, but oftentimes have a little anxiety or neuroticism, especially for myself, that comes along with instilling the habitual nature and the discipline that we think comes with being a healthier version of ourselves. My whole love and interest in chatting with people is especially in the health world like if if you're in a random career maybe you don't have a real love of what you're doing but i don't find that in the health world i most people come to nutrition come to fitness come to health in general because they've made some dramatic impact on themselves and really care about impacting others and helping them get to their best version so i would love to hear once more, your origin story, so to speak, like what brought you into nutrition and the health field? Yeah, definitely. So I was, it's a, it's a long and winding road and I will be concise as much as possible or as much, much as helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I had childhood obesity mm -hmm. and I had that, you know, in the early 2000s. And so there was some conversation around health and wellness, but there was also a lot of misinformation. So I felt at the time, um, you know, I, I grew up with a wonderful, you know, varied diet in terms of what my parents were eating. We had a lot of home cooked meals. And yet I was a kid where there was something quote unquote wrong with my body because that was a lot of the dialogue at the time. Uh, so I was about 80 pounds overweight. Um, and at the time, what actually started my awareness that the foods you eat affect how you feel was something that was very popular back then. It was Atkins. My parents put me on Atkins and, you know, when people hear that, they're like, oh my God, how horrible. It was actually really lovely because it showed me, whoa, food is powerful. And now if you flash forward 20 years, like for sure, there's a lot more information I now have about nutrition, but that with Atkins, I was able to lose most of that weight. And it really instilled in me, it's, it, it showed me so much. Not only was I, you know, more heavy set and my weight was truly affecting my life, my lifestyle. I was fairly inactive because it didn't feel good to move. You know, like it was, it's, it's tough when you're, um, when you're carrying that extra weight, especially to that degree. But it showed me things like, wow, even the foods I eat, the the things that I drink, I was having daily headaches as a 14-year-old before I made those changes. And so to suddenly be like, oh, I feel better. And oh, the scale weight is coming down as a side effect of me coming into more of a balance. That was hugely impactful. That really started my whole love affair with like, okay, food is not only just delicious, but it can serve you in different ways if you're open to it. So that that's where things started for me. What was 
for millennials, probably myself included, I don't know that I, I know specifically what Atkins is. What? How was Atkins done at that point? Because paleo is kind of similar in pillars to Atkins, or at least they compare themselves other than food quality. But can you go over like what what constitutes the old school Atkins diet? Definitely. So the old school Atkins, and I still like, I can visualize when I close my eyes, like the thick Atkins book. It was like thick because it was small. It was like to the point, but there are a lot of pages to it and probably a lot of recipes too. It was very much eat as much dietary fat as you want. Definitely eat some protein and don't eat any starches. Don't eat any fruit. Don't eat the starchy vegetables like carrots and, you know, parsnips and all that stuff. Don't eat those. Just eat leafy greens, non-starchy vegetables, some protein and use fat to flavor. So it was very, I mean, it was, I was eating 20 or fewer grams of carbs a day. It was very, very strict. I would say keto. Yeah, that's keto. Right. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. Okay. Did they harp on food quality at all? Not really. Okay. No. No. Yeah. That was a little before that time. The food quality stuff seemed to come later, especially I used to you know, I kind of grew up in like paleo centric as well uh, later. So definitely, you know, big love affair with the quality of foods as well. And that was not so much a conversation than with Atkins. It was like, you want the bacon? Get it from anywhere. Just go get yourself like the bacon. Said 80 it, pounds. Yeah, it worked. Yeah, it definitely did. And And again, it helped me understand, you know, looking back, I can really see that one big thing, and this is common with clients I work with now, and for myself now, I think just for human bodies in general, is that I dramatically increased the amount of protein I was eating. So what was so amazing for me at that age was that I was suddenly satisfied by my meals. So that desire for snacking or feeling like I had a really big appetite and that was something wrong or bad, it flipped it on its head because now I was satisfied meal to meal. Yeah. So that's the, I love that you brought that shift up. What yeah. I think most people are seeing now in the nutritional or the lifestyle space around embodiment and weight management, energy management is more of a all sides converging on protein centric. Yeah. Thankfully, it's less about energy, right? Fat, carbohydrates, and a lot more about if you want to cut through the noise and you don't need to necessarily optimize off the bat, you can do a lot of positive benefit just by focusing on protein. Definitely. And, you know, a focus on protein too, because I can, there's so much in the, you know, as I'm sure, you know, in the wild world of nutrition and from what I see nutrition and dieting, oh my gosh, you start, start to see, I mean, I'm six feet tall, so I'm, you know, taller than the average woman, right? So if I do a quick random Google search on how much protein I should be eating, it's 200 plus grams a day. And that can be good and fine for, you know, someone who wants to achieve that. But it can, there can be mixed messaging around how much protein where you feel like, oh my God, I could never. And then so many women don't even try. So I think there's also, you know, nuance to the conversation of like, yeah, let's increase protein. It doesn't have to be the highest ever protein diet. It's enough protein at your meals that they help you feel good and satisfied until your next meal, which brings it back to common sense, which I think is so important when we're looking at our nutrition journeys, because we want to ideally, I think, be practicing the habits that we want to keep up with for the rest of our lives or, you know, for a longer portion of our life. Yeah. The sustainability factor is the only factor. Like people get burned out. Most people will get burned out in their early thirties if they've been yo-yo dieting their entire lives. And that tends to be the 
the trend that I, I see from everyone where they stop caring so much about optimization and maybe their the lofty goals they had in their 20s and they're like i just want to stop thinking about this it's yeah. consuming so much energy so much willpower and i have a family i have creative projects i have all of this other things and i don't need nutrition or eating to consume like a third of my life my yeah. life force just thinking about it yeah exactly right we hit this level of decision fatigue where like i just want it to be working for me instead of me always working to try to figure it out because then you're just running on that hamster wheel what do you consider for you and in general probably just uh, a satiating amount of protein per meal what do you shoot yeah. for yeah so for me i well per meal i think per meal and per day, I think those can vary. So per day, for any woman who hasn't played around with protein levels before, aiming for a minimum of 100 grams of protein per day, which, you know, if you want to shake it out to 25 to 30 grams of protein per meal, and then maybe you have a snack or you have, you know, some other stuff that fills in the rest of that, that's huge. And the taller you are, or the more active, or if you're trying to build muscle, then we're, you know, adding some protein on top of that. I don't think most women really need to be consuming more than like 150, 160 grams of protein per day. There's always going to be, you know, people who are outside of, you know, have extenuating circumstances, but 100 grams, beautiful, up to 150. Yeah, that's a great number. Well, I would say for guys, I mean, that's if you're getting 50 grams of protein per meal for 150 grams a day, that's you're trying like that is a planned thing. Yeah, that's not just going to happen randomly, is it? Like you've got to, you're putting in the effort. And two, once you put in that effort, like we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago in terms of like decision fatigue, if you just give it a month of effort of saying like, not only can I start to visualize what portion, you know, equals about 50 grams or 30 grams per meal of protein, but then really seeing, well, what, what do I prefer? right? Because that is a very satisfying amount of food. So that's going to be a decent amount of your daily diet is this amount of protein. So it it takes effort. But then you're like, we we're saying you're set for the long term where you know, yeah, I love that in a steak, or I love that with salmon, then you just know your go to's. Yeah, what are your go to's for for just all around satiating whole protein sources? Man, chicken thighs, I'm a big fan of chicken around here. And then right now, tons of salmon. I I will go cyclically in terms of like throughout the year. So I do, I like to play around because I love to be in the kitchen. So I always like to be cooking different things, but chicken, salmon, canned chicken, canned salmon, if that's more available for people, those are wonderful options too. Yeah. You tend to stay away from more ruminant or red meat? Not necessarily. No, I just like to be a little more frugal. Sure. <laughs> oh, typically yeah. the, ch- the chicken, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, right. It's a good good filler with a lot of protein that most people will be able to find some recipe or meal that they enjoy. And it also probably was in childhood. So you're not um, neglecting anything or depriving yourself of anything, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It it hits a lot of nails right on the head. Yeah. How do you think about, well, actually I'll stay on the protein for a minute. Have you noticed anything around cravings with, or I guess just general daily energy levels and cravings specifically around playing with protein on a day-to-day basis with yourself or clients, anything around that? Yeah. I think the protein, you know, a lot of the clients, so I primarily work with women and a lot of the clients that I've worked with have done the yo-yo dieting and they identify, you know, to some degree, (laughs) excuse me, with emotional eating. 
So oftentimes when they're coming to work with me, they want to focus on the emotional eating because it's like, I want to process through this. I want to be done with it. I want to let it go. And I always say like, okay, we're going to get there. But first off, let's like actually fuel your body. And what that means is eating enough protein, right? And you're eating your protein at your meals and even at snacks and dessert too. You don't have to go protein gaga, right? Just like start to get some darn protein in there. Then they typically find that the cravings, they get less intense. So you're still going to have food preferences, right? There's nothing wrong with like wanting a cookie or wanting something like, you know, popcorn or whatever, like having some fun foods in there. But usually when we're increasing the protein, the cravings, the food noise really tamps down. That's what I find. That's a good way to put that. I like food noise. Yeah. Have you played around or what is the starting point that you think most we'll go with women because that's probably what you have most experience with are having protein wise in their day. Like do you do food logs or what would you guess that most people are starting at without putting any awareness around it? 40 to 60 grams. I do, you know, I've, I, I, these days I do do food logs and we do like macro tracking and calorie tracking because I just want time to be very efficiently spent with them. And so typically if they're not, if they're just letting the protein equal out what it's going to equal out, it's around 50 grams per day. And so doubling that to start probably yeah. is a massive mover. Yeah. Yeah, it really, it does, it does a lot. And I think, you know, it also increases the volume of food that they're eating often. And that can be startling. A lot of, not, not all women, but a decent amount of the women that I work with, when we start together, they're like, Lucia, I'm having to eat so much food. Like what gives? But then they're satisfied. Yeah. And that probably runs most of their, I mean, that's a hormone leveler. So people mm-hmm. tend to feel a little more stable for the rest of the day. You just mm-hmm. don't get as hangry and tend to make a little better choices. Uh, I don't actually count protein towards energy anymore, mm-hmm. which is like a no-no if you're in pure nutritional space, but simply because I tend to work with a lot more people who are doing resistance training and just yeah. breaking down tissue. But it's not that big of an energy contributor anyway, but whenever you're putting it in there, do you have it contribute to like daily energy intake or do you just you do? Okay. Yeah. For calories. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's helpful. You know, I just want people to be able to see, even if their bodies are utilizing it differently, I want them to be able to see what's coming in and just to feel more like calorie literate. Cause again, a good amount of the people that I work with calories have scared them or They've worked with calories. They've, you know, done a very low calorie diet before. So calories have been associated with restriction and scarcity. So it is, it's like, let's just show you that how much food you're eating and how the protein puzzle pieces in there. Yeah, well put. Um, energy wise. So Ted Naiman likes to just, Ted Naiman is just a doctor in the, the nutrition space. And he made a name because he did the PE diet, which is just protein to energy. So he just completely bypassed the war around keto, carnivore, plant-based, and just went, turned carbohydrates and fats into energy. Mm. Do you, what do you notice with energy in general? Like how do, how do you notice yourself um, differentiating between fats, carbs, or how do your clients, like what was your experience on Atkins since that's like 80% fat? How are your energy levels? Energy levels, you know, they were fine. And now it was such a long time ago. You have to remember too, that I was losing so much weight that energy levels definitely increased. 
but I was expending more energy. I was moving more from being very inactive to feeling like, oh my gosh, I do have energy. I can now go expend that energy. So these days in terms of fats and carbs, really they're a pretty even split. And it just depends on the person's preference. If they like to eat higher fat, beautiful. If they find they really thrive with more carbohydrates or they just like that feeling of that quick energy, fantastic. So I think it really does become more individual and there are individual differences. Yeah, that's true. Um, Do you touch on sort of managing insulin or insulin resistance or how to sort of stabilize insulin at all throughout your, your day at all? You know, not specifically, again, what I really focus on are the kind of basic healthy habits. So what is sleep quality? Are we getting enough sleep? Mm. Are we understanding our stress levels, right? Of course, those are going to be correlated as well. Um, Are you getting in enough water? We know the importance of water. We could probably talk a lot about water. I'd be curious about your opinions about Mm -hmm. water. Um, And then looking at that calorie balance of, you know, if you want to be maintaining your weight or losing the weight or even bulking and gaining weight, gaining muscle, right? Having those conversations, um, getting in daily steps, that daily general movement, and then resistance training with progressive overload. So those are the basic healthy habits that I'm looking at with clients for the most part. Again, I don't pretend to be a doctor. I don't diagnose or treat. But if someone is having more sensitivity with their blood sugar levels, then for sure we are looking at carbohydrates and yeah. fat and probably they're going to feel better with that lower um, slant of carbohydrates. Yeah. And I love in that list that you put sleep quality up yeah. top. People it's usually huge. put it at the bottom. <laughs> and I mean, <clears throat> I, th- I think it was Sean Stevenson <clears throat> and Matt Walker, when they first started coming out, sleep, Sean Stevenson wrote sleep better. And then Matt Walker's just went bananas first person that people took seriously with talking about sleep because that's all yeah. it did <laughs> and it i think it's the most important like you can cheat your way around food and moving like you can get away for so long with a garbage diet i mean most people do just yeah. heavily processed food for most of their lives and and energy you don't actually have to exercise to be healthy i think I would say you do, but like people can drop massive amounts of weight just from changing nutrition. But if your sleep is awful, nothing works. Like you have zero energy, your appetite is completely dysregulated, hormones are off, like everything about your body revolves around having a base minimum of sleep. And I love the Matt Walker quote, which is like five, only 5% of people have a gene that lets them get away with less than or six hours of sleep. Wow. The rest of the people are just stealing from yeah. their future, right? So it's seven hours is like the minimum. And I'm definitely like an eight plus person, mm-hmm. but I appreciate you putting sleep up so high. What do you what do you think is important for sleep quality or sleep hygiene? Mm, it really depends on the person because I think some people who have sleep issues are so in their head about their sleep and they it, it becomes this like chasing your tail thing about sleep. And I feel like you're nodding your head and you agree or you see that maybe that's, you know, your experience too. So for some people, it's like, well, you got to take your sleep less seriously. Stop stressing yourself out about it. Remember you're thinking, right? Like I, I'm big into mindfulness, right? So your thinking is something that you do. You are not your thoughts. Your thoughts come and your thoughts go. So if we're taking our thoughts really personally, that's where we can be like spinning, like chasing our tails. And so that can be happening with sleep. And then other people, like you mentioned a little bit ago, right? Where people kind of get into their thirties and they're like, I can't can't just 
like be scraping by anymore, or I want my nutrition to be really efficient now. I think in our thirties, that's often, especially for women where we can't get away with the no sleep anymore. So I think a lot of people are just kind of starting to become more aware and self-aware that like, wow, I do have to put, I do have to have a bedtime. (laughs) I do need like some sort of a wind down routine. And I just need to like calm myself a bit more instead of just assuming it's going to happen. So there's a little bit of that self-discovery bit too. Yeah. And there was a good meme that I saw the other day and it was like all of the things we're punished with when we're kids are actually just good (laughs) self-care routines when we're adults like take a nap stop talking to other people take a time out like all eat your vegetables right yeah those are just self-care routines when you're going to bed at nine (laughs) o'clock yeah if i have 9 30 and i have if i can do 20 minutes at 9 30 for a meditation and be in bed by six that's a great night yeah i'm very happy about that yeah that's funny um do you talk about or are you affected by light or um, like blue light or different shades of of UV at all or um, amount of sunlight you get in the day, anything like that? Do you notice any effect? Yeah, for sure. You know, and again, that's kind of, I think that's a great conversation to have. Often for me, it's lower down on the list. And Mm -hmm. some of that stuff is taken care of just by working on those healthy habits. So if someone is, you know, more inactive, they're more on their screens during the day. And then we have some work on getting outside for more walks. Okay, now there's less screen time. Or okay, now you're like getting that natural light on your eyes early in the morning. Because when can you walk? Oh, before you go to work in the morning or before you're sitting inside. So some of that stuff can just come you know, a little more naturally just by proxy, right? Like that side effect of just saying, let me focus on these healthy habits. So yeah. I, there's awareness around it, but for the most part, we don't tend to touch on it too much because it takes care of itself. Yeah. Well, well, those are the perfect ones. I love it when things take care of themselves. <laughs> yeah. So would you say that sleep, stress levels, um, weight management and resistance training, are those are your pillars, so to speak, obviously nutrition <laughs> as well? Yeah, those those are the huge pillars. And then, you know, the the mindfulness, I think, is one that we can't avoid as well at some point, just that recognition, even if it's as simple as, even if it's simple enough as understanding, I am not my thoughts. Mm-hmm. I don't have to solve for my thoughts, right? Like I will have, when I'm stressed out, I will have stressy thinking. <laughs> like that is not something bad that I then have to go fix, right? It's just human nature. Our stress response evolves for a reason. Our stress thinking evolves for a reason. We just happen to live in a time where, for the most part, we're pretty darn safe. We don't have a tiger to run away from if we're feeling a big rush of adrenaline, right? We have more of these chronic stressors. So it's a lot of kind of releasing. So that's a long-winded way of saying there's another one in there, which is the mindfulness component. How, what's, is there a stepwise process where sort of people can integrate those? Are they, do you try to uh, incorporate and bring awareness to those pillars all at once? Or is there a first, this one, next, this one, next, this one type of approach? Yeah, I would say it's, 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 um, it depends on the person, which I know no one wants to hear that. Like it's gotta be this, you know, this certain process I follow, but it really depends on the person because some people have certain habits already taken care of. Some people are good sleepers. Some people are aware of their stressors. Some people do just need like to bump up their protein <laughs> and then yeah. maybe the resistance train, right? Or like feel comfortable in the gym and then they feel pretty good. So for the most part though, I would say increasing the protein. That's so, so common. Not everyone needs it, but increasing protein, getting your daily steps 
And then strength training three times, maybe five times at the most per week. Those are huge. Just looking at those three. And then we kind of take for granted the sleep stuff. Okay. But like, I'll right. be okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, what have you noticed with changes with strength training? And fitness in general, do you notice an interplay of people reporting ripples or differences to other aspects of their life? Like what are the common things you hear whenever someone starts a resistance training or just a more active routine? Like what do they report changes rippling into other aspects? Yeah, it's absolutely huge for them to take pressure off of what the scale is saying once they start to consistently strength train. That absolutely, I feel like, breaks the spell, like the siren song of having that scale weight be the thing that needs to be lower, lower, lower. When they can start to see, okay, even after a couple months of strength training, my inches are changing. I have my clients take inches too. They don't have to, but it's so helpful. My inches are changing. I'm feeling better my stress is more manageable and the scale has gone down a little bit, but not the amount I thought it would. And now I feel healthier. I, I think a lot of people, their identity changes through that process where they feel like, wow, I feel athletic. A lot of my clients haven't really had a background of athleticism. I sure didn't, you know? So I think there is, there is that change that happens just via strength training. And you're not, they're not even, you know, I, if you haven't noticed, I'm not super hardcore, not super diehard about stuff. It's all this kind of gentle rolling in. So the strength training follows suit with that. You're not like killing yourself in the gym. You're lifting heavy stuff. You're putting it down a couple of times per week and you're doing so so that you can rest and recover because a lot of the good stuff, as you know, happens when we're not doing the strength training. It's happening in response to that stressor. So that that would be some of the the big stuff. Yeah. And when I first learned about resistance training and kind of the science behind it, that was the first time they introduced the the beneficial stress term. I didn't know there was a mm. specifically differentiated stress, which was EU stress, which is yes. called U stress, which is the hormetic good stressors. So that's the cold therapy and the sauna and the resistance training and things that are still um still acute stressors, like you you know, it sends your body into a fight or flight, but with the intention of build or bringing it back to baseline quickly and then being able to tolerate more and increase your window of capacity. So it, it builds capacity opposed to all the chronic stressors, which are just kind of slowly whittling down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To literally be more resourced and to be more resilient. And I think no matter what, as often as we want our minds and the way we talk about our brain, our minds to be separate than our bodies, if not, our brain, we love it. And it's within our body. It's part of our body. So of course, when we're more physically resilient, we're going to feel more mentally resilient too, to emotional stressors as well. Yeah, that's well said. And I think everyone will understand the feeling if they walk out of any training class that was remotely hard or had any session, you just feel like things that usually matter to you matter way less. Like any confrontation or mild or people in general, they just kind of bounce off a little more easily. So yeah, it's a great, great facet to incorporate. What are the nervous system awareness uh, is huge yeah. on the online space now. And I had a podcast with someone about nervous system regulation and just stress yeah. in general. Yeah. What do you use for your, your tools for your stress regulation? So 
maybe this is an inter interesting response, but I use barely any tools because <laughs> a lot of the women who I work with, I actually work with a lot of, you know, um, people who are in kind of supporting roles um, for others, caretakers, social workers, a lot of therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. So there are people who are well aware <laughs> that there's something going on with stress, right? Like they see it, they literally work with clients all day every day about their stress and then they're stressed out of their gourd and they're like i know what i should be doing right i need another tool maybe it's tapping maybe it's breath work maybe it's or that so i think all those tools are great but it's our own awareness of just the principles of life that you're a human you're gonna i'm you know i said this a couple minutes ago you're a human humans think thoughts humans are not their thoughts and you know okay so when you have a stressy thought, maybe the next thing to do isn't to try to chase it away or try to run away from it. Part of mindfulness is being in the present moment. And sure, we can have practices of, you know, putting our feet on the floor and, you know, feeling our hands or like mm -hmm. looking for five things to say the colors of, you know, there's my blue light or whatever it is. Great. But what are all these different practices bringing us back to? Being in the present moment. So our awareness of that doesn't necessarily have to come from a tool. Because I also think that there are people who are out there who have never done any of these like awareness-based practices, but they're the most chill, present people you've ever seen before. So how do they come to it? Right. I think through that, that own natural understanding that they have innate health and wellness and it's in the present moment and we just get distracted. So I, I hope that that's a helpful answer. No, it's very helpful. And a lot of the most spiritual people i know aren't actually spiritual they kind of just like take life as it comes and they're just like eh or yeah it's just kind of built in yeah, yeah one of my former partners is is like that she's just a little random sage shaman without doing anything that you would attribute to like consciousness practice wow. just kind of life has has taught her rather forcefully at times <laughs> and less forcefully but yeah, yeah. just just learning along the way has has built in all of those tools so some people definitely have the awareness yeah they do Appreciate and them. you know i was just talking with a friend about this other day like and it might be self-selective okay so this might not be a great example but if you look at interviews of people who have hit 100 years or are older most of them like some of them smoke some of them drink some of them are like i i don't care about a healthy diet maybe some of them have had amazing diets too but for the most part, uh, what seems to be that similar thread is that they let stuff roll off their back, roll off their shoulders. So I think that is huge. You know, it comes back to sleep and stress management. If we can let life do its thing and really understand what we are in charge of ourselves, which is just coming back into the present moment, it makes a lot of other stuff kind of come into perspective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, most of the blue zones, I think... People are getting away from the blue zones a little bit because there's so much conflicting information around them. But uh, the one common thread, regardless of nutritional profiles, they all ate whole foods. That was the nutritional profile. Yeah. It was like social connection and stress management were the, yeah. the big ones, right? They just didn't, they had really good connections in their lives and they just didn't care that much about <laughs> they they just didn't have that underlying stress all the time yeah yeah, yeah. literally erodes 
Yeah. And if you think about to me, I, so I had my master's in social work, clinical mental health. So it's like, I love, you know, you know, how, how people, people basically, if you look at the people who are most well-connected on that deep level or who have those close relationships, maybe it's just with a handful of people. And if not a bunch of people, they're present. They're in the moment with the other person. Again, they're not always thinking about their past or they're not always like freaking out about the future. They're present. They're having conversations. So they're kind of in their humanity in that way as well. So I think it makes total sense. Yeah. Are there any changes that you see in people that just surprise you where you'll just tweak one thing or someone will discover something about themselves inadvertently through maybe a nutritional change or a fitness change? And they'll be Mm -hmm. like, I had no idea that. Are there any like realizations, common realizations that people have? Yeah, what a great question. I think a common one that surprises people is eating enough food will help them lose weight. I do think a lot of people are unintentionally stuck in that cycle of, okay, when I want to lose weight, I'll eat barely anything. But then they they think that they're doing that because they're not eating all day. But then at the end of the day, they're eating these really calorically rich, maybe more processed foods that are putting them way above any sort of calorie deficit, probably into a bit of a surplus or maintenance. So even having a calorie deficit, because I do, like I said, work in the calories, we, we talk about the deficits versus maintenance, just so people feel really efficient with their use of time when it comes to tracking some of the women I work with are just like, I didn't know I could lose weight with this amount of calories because it feels high for me. So that can really blow their mind because then everything else is easy. It's like, oh yeah, I might have to bump up the protein a little bit, but it's not with a brand new to me food. It's just like having a bigger portion of the proteins I'm already getting. Like Mm -hmm. they don't have to completely change every single food that they're eating. It's just these small tweaks. What do you think the the change actually comes from there? If they're doing... Do you think it's because they just feel better and therefore have more energy to do everything else that contributes to weight? What do you think the change actually comes from when they eat more than they think they should? Yeah, I think a big part of it is that for sure, the emotions of it, but it's also then they're eating in a more consistent calorie deficit. Whereas before they thought they were in a deficit because they thought they were thinking intentionally about their food a lot but they were doing like a yo a yo-yo unintentionally. They thought the yo-yo was something else, but they've been under eating, under eating, overeating, overeating. And where that has averaged out isn't actually maintenance even, right? Or a deficit is often a surplus. And they're like, oh, it's my hormones. It's me. It's me getting older. So it's putting that on its, you know, the other way yeah. of saying, no, the deficit is bigger than like your deficit, your calculated deficit right. is plenty of food. It's, it shouldn't feel like total restriction. It should feel like you're just kind of eating under your maintenance. So you, you're going to get hungry before your meals, but it, you won't be starving. And then you layer in and now you're getting enough nourishment from enough protein, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The difference between hungry and starving is a huge one or a hangry, hungry and hangry, right? What the fine line, like people can appreciate being, having hunger and feeling that their body actually needs something that like when I, I tend to overeat all that, well, purposely overeat all the time just to put on mass. So sometimes I completely lose track of what hunger feels like. So I'll just then intermittent fast and be like, I don't really need to remember what that signal feels like. So the reason I love nutrition coaching so much isn't really the results. It's the putting people back able to listen 
to their bodies. Like your hormones are pretty strong if you're not chronically inflamed or stressed out all the time and listening. Like your body's pretty good at sending signals. And most people just haven't had to and have untrained that. So if you just get a little quieter, yeah, it it sends them before you hear it as a screen, right? Most people will hear the the scream of hangriness before anything else. That's such good advice. Yeah. And then people believe that that is their, that's what their hunger is. Right. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, again, for women, I do think messaging is different in terms of diet culture, et cetera, where it's like you, it plays into a lot of those extremes or all or nothing, this or that either or thinking. So then you, you start to believe and you take your thinking really seriously that if this is my experience of hunger, this is the one way it is. This is bad. It's uncomfortable. Versus coming from that regulated appetite and hunger signaling that I think we all pretty much inherently have. We just have to, like you said, like turn the noise down a little bit so that we can start to experience it and then build trust with it. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, building trust with it. Yeah, you're trusting that your body is actually accurately communicating its needs. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's weird whenever the trust thing is interesting for like sugar. Like I have almost a, I'm so sensitive at this point because I've been eating obnoxiously clean yeah. for five years, not out of choice for the, at the start of it, I was cooking for a partner who had Hajimoto's and that is just a very restrictive thing. But now I never really, I mean, I, I enjoy plenty of things, but um, sugar is one of those things will just like smack me in the face like almost give me an immediate sore throat. I have such mm-hmm. a reaction to it, like refined white sugar. Yeah. So the the caloric model pisses me off to some degree with things like that, where I will be hungry immediately in an hour, ravenous, if I do just a quick carb dump. Where if you just look at it for calories, you're like, this should sustain you for this long. I was like, no, I will be ravenously hungry in an hour if I sure. don't jack up the protein. I think that's where people get a little, like, obviously calories are a thing, but if you eat cereal all day and no real protein, it just doesn't make sense based off of how you're feeling. Like if you just count 2,500 calories and all carbs, you're just going to be really hungry all day and that doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. And I do think that that, you know, that was so much the experience of women in the nineties or even in the early two thousands and now, but especially in like greater culture, that was totally it of just eat less food, right? No, we need to be smart when we're eating less food. It's probably more food than what you thought it was. Right. And you're going to be prioritizing eating enough of certain food. That's also why I have my clients track. Because if I were to tell them, and I've had other clients, you know, in the past where they didn't do tracking, right? And then when we looked at what they were eating, they're completely under eating. And no wonder it feels so bad to lose weight when you do it in that way. So for sure, there is, there's more nuance to it. The macronutrients are important. Fiber content is important. There's a balance between unprocessed foods and processed foods for someone who wants that balance, right? Because we also have autonomy. So like your experience, you don't have to be eating the processed foods. No one's forcing any of us to eat the processed foods. But if we want to learn how to integrate them, then we need to practice that integration. What has been the most sustainable way for for you or for people to integrate the the processed foods back in once they know what uh, sort of what their baseline is and then they want to add a little enjoyment in what's the the way to do that without going overboard so to speak I think to plan it in every day yeah 
Yeah. If someone really wants to like practice that, then you really have to practice it. And you have to say like, all right, I understand this is just going to come down to portions. So if there's an emotion around these foods, I should probably have these foods more often with that baseline of getting in enough nourishment so that my hunger and appetite is not just me eating, you know, only ice cream every day within my calorie amounts. It's me figuring out how does the ice cream fit in? How do the cookies fit in? How do homemade cookies fit in? How do some processed random cookies fit in, right? It's like life is going to happen. Often people do get into situations where they're going to have an experience of making that choice. So instead of trying to avoid that practice, we just roll it in. Yeah. So uh, another guest nutritionist had the abstainer and moderator philosophy. And this one was really good for me because I was like, oh, that makes total sense. I know plenty (laughs) of guys that are abstainers, mm-hmm. no real self-control. Like I told my mom to stop <laughs> sending me baked goods. She would just send me loaves of zucchini bread, chocolate, like pretty healthy-ish because I screamed at her for using canola oil. Like there's some things that can just get eliminated and you'll be better off. And sure. like oxidized seed oils are one of those. So I was like, just use coconut, unrefined coconut or something. It's just not canola oil, mom, please. But that either way, she sends it to me and I'm like, oh, I'll just have a piece. Nope. I will eat half the loaf in one day. So I do not have it around me. So I am an abstainer. I am better off if it's not in my line of sight and I can't reach for it because I'll just make healthier choices by, by default. But some people, and this makes so much more sense because we tend, I tend to come at things with my own filters. Some people do, they'll go crazy with the restriction, right? So Have you noticed that dichotomy in, in people at all, either sort of the moderator versus all or nothing? Yeah, I do kind of wonder if it's gendered, you know, yeah. I, I do think that there's something to that. I do think a lot of women that I've worked with have tried to be abstainers. They've been told it's easier, but then it's not working for them. And then they make that personal because they believe they're thinking, blah, 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 blah. So they are practicing a lot of moderation or like, I love to use the example of snacks. Okay, let's let's make sure that your meals are satisfying, right? Like for a lot of us, we snack because we're not eating well before the snacking. And then the snack feels like a whole emotional thing. But I think it's great for most women to practice making an intentional snack. So the snack, let's have the treat that you're probably thinking about, right? Most of us, when we're snacking, we're like, yeah, what's that like fun, quick, probably carby, salty, sweet food. Great. Let's have that. But let's also have maybe something fresh with it. Let's have some protein in there too. So you're getting the fiber, you're getting the protein, you're getting the satisfaction of basically having that snack be a mini meal. And if the carbs are coming from something more processed, great. Now you're seeing how to have it in a balance that is now moderation. So I agree with you though. For some people, we, we don't need to have a lot of those treats in the house but for other people, it, that is very much the work or that's the work that they've been avoiding is figuring out how to feel loosey-goosey with any and all foods. It's a great phrase. <laughs> uh, let's go back to a little of the nitty gritty that you mentioned. So calorie tracking. Yes. I mean, it's in every nutrition book and every training programs like here's how you calculate basal metabolic rate and all this fun stuff that almost no yeah. one will use. Do yeah. you walk your clients... Or have you used that personally with actually crunching numbers for determining base calories and metabolic rate, maybe how much you're expending throughout the day based on workload, all of that stuff? 
Yeah, I, I crunch those numbers for my clients. They're getting that individualized. Yeah. I like to do those calculations. So I'm doing that for them. Uh, and then they start and they implement the macros that I'm giving them, which, you know, if you're looking at the macros and that means that there's some sort of a calorie amount that those macros add up yeah. to. So they're looking at the total calories. They're looking at protein, carbs, and fats. Um, some of them want to learn that stuff. So they do. But for the most part, I, I agree with you. It's the nitty gritty. And so just having the awareness that, oh, on days that I am more active, I expend more energy. That's usually, again, it's common sense, but sometimes we just don't think about it in that way that, oh, if I practice consistently getting a certain amount of steps in, that's an activity level, right? And if I do that daily, that's my general activity level and how much energy my body needs for that might be different than if I did something different, right? If I were, you know, competing in some athletic event, or if I had an injury and I had to like sit a lot and expend less energy. So we talk about it in those real life ways, um, but I do the numbers because I, I love that stuff. Yeah. What's a good step count since that's come up a couple of times? Walking is, I think walking is probably the best thing people can do yeah. for like metabolism <laughs> and longevity and just everything in general. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's great for sleep, right? It helps us be ready to sleep at night. It's great for stress relief. Is helping with our eye movement. You know, there's so many different ways that we could be thinking about what it's doing to help support us. I think it's unfortunate that unfortunate that people poo-poo on that 10,000 step number because they say it's based off of faulty, you know, uh, what the study from Japan or whatever else. I think 7,000 minimum is beautiful. Yeah. And I also think between 7,000 and like 14,000, right? 13,000, which ends up being in that middle. What is that? 10,000? Right. That's great. But it depends on where someone's coming from too, right? If they're coming from more inactivity, then let's try 5,000 and then we build from there. But for most people, 7,000 is a great starting off point. And then if we can get to 10,000, I think that's a beautiful amount of activity. How much activity is that? For And I've, I've seen at least 10 studies not huge, but all yeah. of them seem to, the benefits start to seem around, change around 6,000. So I think seven is a great number because mm -hmm. that's above the baseline that I've seen floating around. Um, what's a, what does that feel like? What does 7,000 steps feel like for most yeah. people? Yeah. So, you know, usually about every two, what is it? Every 2,000 steps is a little bit under a mile. So that's going to be maybe three plus miles of walking a day. And so if you want to get that all in like an actual walk or a couple of walks, beautiful. But if you're wearing a movement tracker and you're doing a lot of chores or you're yeah. just like a little busybody around the house, so many people get a ton of steps just from daily movement. And we, we don't know that, right? Or we don't know that that is impactful. So Yes, mile counting can be helpful just to start to understand, okay, 2,000 steps is about this amount of, you know, or like 10, uh, 1,000 steps is about 10 minutes or so of walking a day. But walking and movement can be a little bit interchangeable right. too. So it's mostly just about moving more, which can yeah. seem a bit vague, which I hate to say, yeah. but it's okay. Again, common sense. Are you just up and doing stuff? That's huge. Right. Yeah, I didn't know what that felt. I'm not, a, I hadn't been a big tracker type of person because I am so logical and a little too anal about most things. So I've tried sure. to detrack. Yeah. And I was during the summer, like a couple months ago, I was just fried. Like every day I was like, why am I so tired on days when I'm not even doing like heavy resistance exercise? And I get up and I go for a walk around the lake next to my house. 
and then I co-manage a farm. So I'd go up and do like two to three hours of farm work in the summer. I had my tracker on. And by the end of the day, I was hitting like 20 without doing yeah. anything planned. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay. I'm just moving a lot. That's why I'm yeah. proud. Yeah. Right. Which is again, coming back to uh, when we can use that tracking and have it be more neutral, which is a practice, which is where that mindfulness comes in. Because if we want more activity, let's say we do want to be more active because you're like, this is how I, my life happens is that I'm farming and I'm making this stuff happen. And it includes me being physically active. Great. Now we can ensure that you're eating enough. So that you're actually fueled, right? So there's this like athleticism that yeah. I think some of us can take for granted. That's what it sounded like to me when you said that. I was like, yeah, you got to fuel if you're going to have those active days. So that information, yeah, it can be so helpful. Yeah, especially in the the men's space, like there's as much potential body dysmorphia oh, yeah. as in the female space, except ours is usually gaining mass and being yeah. sort of the discipline, the like beat down sort of structure. Oh, yeah. So especially if you're in that and you might still feel a little overweight, like most guys do. I tend to be the anomaly. Um, my body type tends to be the anomaly. Sure. They will often have the, uh, this is good. I still need to lose weight. So they'll do the beat down consistently, but not eat enough because they're like, Hey, this will make me lose weight. And I was like, yeah, you need to still eat a ton. Like I think like you said, 200 calories less than your baseline doesn't feel like a lot and that's sustainable loss right and the protein like the sustainable loss where you don't feel depleted yep. plus keeping your protein high for the uh, the hormonal signaling as long as you're consuming protein glucagon which is your your release into the bloodstream so that's your fat liberation and your muscle glycogen also keeps going so you don't turn off that um, that use it, that catabolic process, if you're keeping your protein high. So I think that the two hacks of, you know, just a couple hundred calories above or below <laughs> where you want to be, plus keeping protein high solves a whole bunch of that willpower problem. It really does. And you know what? <laughs> it's so interesting to hear you talk about, because you primarily work with men, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. When I was first starting out in nutrition back in 2014, 2015, I was working through a gym. I wasn't doing the gym training, but most of my clients were coming from that pool. And it was so, I worked with anyone. I just wanted all the experience I could get, right? So I worked with plenty of women, but I also worked with plenty of men. And it was always so fascinating, exactly what you said. It's it's so different and it is emotional, right? And there can be a lot of disordered eating. But I, this one, you know, after maybe like a year or so working in that space, I remember realizing like, wow, most of my clients, if they're women, that number, the 200 pound number, they want to be under it no matter what, right? Like it's like super personal if they're above 200 pounds for whatever reason. And most of the men I was working, if they were under 200 pounds, bad, very emotional, right? They want to be over 200 from muscle to feel manly, feel strong. So yeah. fascinating. The, the pressure we put on ourselves around those numbers. Yeah. And figuring out it's always been interesting to me where people find themselves feeling like the most manageable version of them. Mm. Some people will be like, yeah, I weighed what I did at the end of high school and they'll feel really good about that. And I don't know if that's a, because you felt good about yourself in high school thing, or because that is just a sustainable weight that you don't have to exert so much energy to keep yourself at. I haven't been able to peel that apart so much. I have a feeling it's a little both, but yeah. I think most people, especially if they played high school sports, they felt just good in their bodies, right? Mm -hmm. 
probably the social connection helped that. And they weren't really, I don't know anyone that watched what they ate in high school. If they, <laughs> no. if they, but if you're in sports and you're young, your metabolism runs itself. So they, they get back to that weight and they just feel like everything is kind of running itself and they can concentrate their energy on things that are important to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that weight represents a lot. And when you unpack yeah. it, then you can really understand what is it representing? What do you value? And then from there, pursue that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned water earlier. So <laughs> yeah. what do you, what do you do water wise, or is there any of that in, in what you talk about? Is it uh, not really an equation? How do you deal with hydration? I don't talk about it much. I, I'm assuming not to any degree in the way that I assume you do. Um, we talk about general water amount, yeah. right? Are you getting enough ounces per day? Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a baseline, which is a total baseline of 50 ounces of water a day. Five zero? Five zero, yeah. yeah. 50 ounces. So some people, that's not a problem. Right. But I do consider that to be one of the healthy habits yeah. is, are you drinking enough water? Yeah. So that we usually leave it at that. That's a great baseline. Yeah. Where'd you come up with that? Is that where most people felt sort of hydrated, so to speak? I think it's just like, a, it's not intimidating. Yeah. I think anything over 50 people just like, they'd like tune out and they're just like, I can't even conceptualize. I feel like 50, they're like, okay. So it like clicks for them for whatever reason it does. They're like, that's, I can do that. I can do that. The, I'm I'm with you. I mean, it's an extra thing that someone has to count that they didn't that didn't even come across their purview of how much water they're drinking. Right? They're like, right. I'm I'm drinking things that counts as hydration, and you're like, yeah. I mean, soda doesn't count. Any right. diuretic doesn't count. But agreed. If I say 64 ounces, which isn't that much, mm -hmm. I watch someone go, ugh, and just kind of like it's dread. It's a to-do now, yeah. Because you have to think about drinking water. Because mm -hmm. I don't count juice. I don't count basically anything other than just straight water. If we're talking about water. Yeah. Um, fruit's hard to count the water count content. Yeah. So I'm like, just water. But the when I first started into the water, I was thinking ounces. Mm -hmm. Now I think quality. Mm. Because the same thing for food, right? It's like, if you're a bodybuilder, you don't, calories or you just need excess calories but the inflammation that comes from bulk quote unquote like um dirty bulking just eating whatever and anything yeah. will do more harm than good over the long run it's kind of the same thing with water is i'd rather people do like very certified clean water if someone's doing like a gallon of tap water not doing themselves a whole lot of good right your right, body's right. spending an enormous amount of energy cleaning that storing all the contaminants so i'd rather people do less i mean the same as food less of better quality tends to be more sustainable yeah like less is more and, yeah. and then it's more efficient and more effective 100 percent. yeah and if you get real weird in the water world and you go with like very clean mineral water and even if it's ionized people don't need a ton to feel well to feel which is very mm -hmm. strange in the first place people are used to feeling things from food right if you yeah. If you have a nice, um, slow digesting protein rich meal, you'll feel your energy come back. Most people are not used to that from water mm -hmm. other than the thirst went away. Like the thirst mechanism got taken care of. And yeah. It's, it. it's yeah. a thing that was present that isn't anymore. More so ionized water is weird because it's charged. So your cells are actually getting hydrogen in the correct charge. So people will f report that same feeling. They'll be like, mm -hmm. I feel 
energy question mark and they're like i don't understand how this works and you're like right because right. energy is <laughs> is charged it's electrons right your whole metabolism is trying to generate energy right you're splitting off these hydrogen these carbons from food from energy and it's actually the splitting off that makes the energy you can also just get that from water which is a very strange concept to come across because none of my curriculum mentioned it like i had never no. heard other than you need water to not die <laughs> yeah. nothing was ever <laughs> like no no you can actually like get fueled from water it's kind of like the it's kind of like the calorie conversation, right? Yeah. If someone's just like super surface level of calories, it's just like, okay, calories in, calories out, doesn't matter. Get all your calories from a bowl of cereal and you should right. have enough energy versus no, the quality of the food, of course, yeah. matters. And now so many of us are like, well, of course, that's obvious. That feels yeah. like a, a some sort of corollary there. Yeah. I don't know why any program doesn't touch water. Mm-hmm. Everyone's like, yeah, about this range of number of ounces, maybe don't drink tap water. And then that's it. And you're like, nothing else, really? Like, you can spend chapters on chapters on chapters on getting into way more detail of um, any sort of food quality than clients really care about at all. But none of the curriculum touches on it. I don't know if they want to touch on it. (laughs) Yeah, probably because it's a huge subject. And I would imagine it varies so much city to city, state to state, you know, region to region, too. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for indulging me in the water. Yes, of course, of course. (laughs) (laughs) If you had to pick one thing that just to tell someone to do, uh, well, tell is a weird word, but (laughs) if you had to guess and just suggest and probably have some good amount of clarity that it would positively affect them over the course of the next five years, what's the one big thing that you would say? That's so tough when it's only one thing. All right, because I have two things, but I will say the one thing. We'll do two. Two's fine. Okay, I'll do do the one that I think people need to hear more, and then we'll do the other one. Um, Resistance training with progressive overload, especially, again, like I'm biased because I have this certain clientele, which is women. Um, Even if you don't, because my second one is the protein and eating enough protein, but I say that without, because again, people here eat enough protein and it's like, oh my God, I don't want to eat too much protein. We're not talking about way too much protein. We're talking about just enough protein. But the strength training in and of itself, I think that that mechanism, and this would be interesting to study and look at more, but I feel like I've worked with so many clients over the years that if they just start strength training, even that, I think, almost takes care of the protein. I think they actually start to have an appetite for more protein, and they don't know where that's coming from. I think that's coming from the strength training. So that's number one. And then from there is actually eating enough protein. And as you know, of course, those go hand in hand with each other. Huh. I wasn't actually expecting that because okay. <laughs> we hadn't talked about it. So that's fantastic to learn. Any specific, is it whatever someone will, will is able to sustain naturally? Or have you found sort of the any forms of resistance training that are more sustainable for the people you work with? Or is it just whatever they will do and enjoy? I do think whatever you will do, whatever you will do and enjoy, but I also think it's okay to do things that you aren't sure if you enjoy yet and to do them consistently and then see if you're open to um, continuing to do them. I think strength training can be so efficient in terms of time use. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have to couple much cardio with strength training. When I program for my clients, it's very much we're just making sure we're hitting these different basic body parts and then we're moving on and we're doing that consistently every couple of days 
And that can be such a revelation for women because even the strength training stuff, like that general kind of diet culture lens is like, do it high intensity, make it efficient, like do jumping jacks or do kind of, I used to work in CrossFit area. So I have a love of CrossFit, but do the CrossFit style where it's the Metcon and the strength training. And I think that's just way too complicated for most people. We mostly just need to be picking up some heavy things every couple of days. And then as we do that, of course, the things are going to get heavier. And that's a progressive overload is that you're letting it get heavier over time because you're doing it consistently. Yeah. You just recited the primal movement model. So (laughs) yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, and put in the step count in there. So you just put in your lift heavy things a couple of times, maybe test your maximum once in a while when you're feeling good and then just walk a ton is basically the ancestral model because no one and their mother likes being burned out from consistent, like hard resistance trainings all the time. Exactly. And for a lot of people that I'm working with, they haven't strength trained in this way before. And so for at least like the first six months, I want to say so much of the practice is just getting their skeletal system, their ligaments, their tendons on board with these movements. So yeah, like the weights are going to feel heavy, but once we drop our egos, it's very much just like, we're just getting kind of our health all like lined up, all those healthy habits, like our ducks in a row. That's great. Um, Timeline. So James Clear, which is Atomic Habits, the guru on habits, so to speak, has a timeline for, you know, the 1% better every day and the inflection point for the time at which that 1% starts to build and the base of an exponential hockey stick. Have you seen any consistent timelines for that? Like whenever those, all of those healthy habits start to stack and people start noticing like dramatic increases in either the ease or energy or something where they start reporting like, oh, I just hit a certain point and everything shifted. I do. I think 12 weeks, I think Mm. so much goodness can happen in 12 weeks. And I think that also, you know, takes the pressure off too. Like if you're really inactive and we're working on steps and you're starting out with like 2000 steps a day, okay, in 12 weeks, you could pretty naturally naturally and effortlessly bump that up to probably almost close to 7,000. And then there you go. You have that habit for the rest of your life. And it took you really a couple, three months to do that. Amazing. Would you say that's the same time frame for building a habit in your experience? Or is there, if you're just focusing on one thing, trying to build a my definition of a habit is literally an unconscious routine that you have to put zero willpower behind. What have you found? Yeah, I think the habit probably comes sooner. I thought that's, I Mm. feel like it's more like two months. Mm. And then the results from that, it's like poignant at like three months. You're like, wow, okay, that got easier a month ago, not having to think about as much. And now like, wow, like I'm catching up with what I've just been doing these last three months. I think the averages I read were 66 days. So that's pretty close to, yeah. that's good though. Cause that's real. I I always wonder where they get those numbers from. Yeah. Like you always hear 21 days and everyone's like, no, like that's the start <laughs> of you thinking about it every day. 66 days. Yeah. A little over two months is yeah. Then it's in your mind and your body will almost yeah. like get you up to do it. And then would you say like six months or so is like really lifestyle sustained it's like built into your identity almost totally i don't think it has to take a full year i think if you just double that time frame of you sticking with the habit you've done it for three months you do it for another three months 
cool, you're golden. You're totally golden. And again, it took off that pressure because I, again, I'm always going to be speaking towards, you know, the people that I work with the most, which tend to be women. When you take off the pressure of trying to figure something out in those three weeks, I think the three weeks kind of scratches like the dopamine itch where a lot of us are like, well, I can be motivated for three weeks, right? I can rely on my dopamine. Okay. At 66 days, you're not relying on the dopamine hit of a crash diet. You're actually just implementing the thing into your life and lifestyle. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a great way of looking at it too. I haven't thought about it like that, but you're right. You're working off of like that novel reward Mm -hmm. for a little bit. And then it actually becomes enjoyable after that. Yeah. Yeah. 21 day challenges do work because there is a lot of that like zero to 40% immediate gratification. Right. And you're like, I want to see where this goes. I want to see. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with doing something for 21 days. Like again, when I was starting out, I was running these group classes and part of them was, it was basically like a primal challenge in those. Right. And so we'd start class, you get used to things and you do the challenge for, you know, after starting the second week, and then we'd have a week afterwards to kind of decompress and chat through things. You can feel amazing. You know, people stopped having their seasonal effective. They dropped 16 plus pounds. Like so many great results can happen in 21 days, but results and habit change are different. So that can be really motivating for its own reasons, but just the reasons how we're coming to it. Like I've had plenty of clients where they don't want to start another diet, but naturally because they've practiced diets, even if they're telling me before they sign up, I don't want to, I don't want this to be a diet. Somewhere in the back of their head, they're like, why is this a diet? Right? So it's so natural that we want to dietize anything. It's just because it was a habit of ours. So if we're unpacking that, it's probably naturally going to come up when we're doing these, like I, they're less sexy, these habits, right? These lifestyle habits, the healthy habits, is it, is it's not that sexy to just like practice drinking your water or to go to sleep at a reasonable time, right? It's not like we were joking about before. It's the stuff that we're like teaching kids. Okay. Go to bed before nine o'clock, eat your vegetables. It's common sense. So it's not going to be like supercharged with all these emotions, but it's almost ironic because with, if people kind of tune into what they're actually looking for, it's a sign that you're on the right track when it gets boring. It should be kind of boring to go for yeah. your daily walk. It doesn't mean it's not enjoyable, right. but like if it were to take up a lot of your decision-making faculties every day, that's not something good really for you to do every single day. It should get boring. It should be like brushing your teeth. Is it really emotionally charged? Probably not. Maybe once in a while, you're really excited to brush your teeth, you know, like you can be like, I'm ready, you know, to feel refreshed, be ready for bed. But how many of us have practiced brushing our teeth? And it's just part of our lives. It's neutral. I think that's kind of where I try to get my clients to when it comes to their habits is can we just get this to neutral? And then you can repeat it without it being this big emotional process. Yeah. Uh, James DeNickel Antonio has a similar thing. All of his tweets, I mean, he's been going on a healthy lifestyle bender for two years. <laughs> that man cranks out books. I don't understand how he writes books so <laughs> quickly, but most of his tweets are like that. They're just like, make this really boring. Just like do this many weight lifts. Like you can forget about the nuancy details and, unless you want to like, unless you're that type of person, but yeah, make your eating, you know, make clean eating boring, make your resistance training boring, make your sleep boring. All of the, your baseline, the foundation of your life, take all of the charge away, leave that for your experiences and the things, the relationships, the things you actually care about. Yeah. Make the, the embodiment stuff a little boring, which I, totally. I like that. I like the neutrality of it for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's very powerful. And, you know, who who would have thought at first that like yeah. the more boring it is, probably the more powerful it is. Right. Yeah. And you see the the things that have the charge behind them are the biohacking things. So that's yeah. usually like, I don't know if cold therapy will go away because it does work so well, but seems to be the, the uh, extreme hormetic stressors. So that's the sauna or the extreme heat, the uh, cold plunges, the really like things where your body will take an extreme hit seems seems to have the charge culturally at the moment. There's always the something that's going to have a novel charge, but you're just like, I wonder what all these people do when they're not doing that. Oh yeah. All the boring (laughs) stuff. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, cherry on top, if that's fun for someone or it's fun to biohack again, like I'm full into that liberation of just like you do you, what sounds fun? What sounds exciting? Let's just, like you were saying, let's just get that baseline because then from there, you're really going to see, oh, what are the tweaks? It's like the appetite and hunger thing. You're going to be able to read that information, that physiological information. You'll be able to read it and understand it better, more quickly, more efficiently. And then if there is, you know, something you want to plug in there from there, great, do it. Awesome. Yeah. That's like a life well lived, in my opinion. Oh, well said. Um, we covered a whole bunch. Was there any aspect or thing that you think deserves more attention or you think that was pretty well-rounded? I think that was pretty well-rounded. You know, maybe if there's just one thing I'd say mm-hmm. is that I think a, a lot of women are insecure about whether they can build these healthy habits in, right? And that is maybe a bit of that identity piece. The healthy habits are for everyone. They're boring because they're for everyone, right? Like there might be some individual differences, but for the most part, we all need to drink water. We all need to move around a bit. We'd all do well to like pick up some heavy stuff. We all generally need a balanced diet and balanced might, you know, differ a little bit person to person. We all need sleep, blah, blah, blah. So of course you can do it. And I think some women, and maybe this is different with men. I see men just like dive in and like charge in and try stuff. Some women, that confidence will come with doing the habits. And so it's okay not to feel confident about it at first. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, I think men have that too. It's more of the there's a little bit of societal pressure there. And there's a little bit of guys sometimes don't do well with tiptoeing. Mm-hmm. Like we just won't, it, it needs to be an immersion yeah. because that identity piece is so prevalent. It needs to be like, I am the type of person who, so uh, we are more likely, I think, to, to give up if it's slow, need that immersion for a lot of people just because it's wired into the, the, well, might be wired into the, the abstainer, the abstination mentality. Kind it of, might be, yeah. It's all or nothing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, where can people find you, follow you, all those good things? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me on. I, I'm amazed, like time has really flown by. So I'm on Instagram and TikTok and all the fun social media. So my website is lushaholly.com. I'm on Instagram at Lucia Holly, uh, TikTok, Lucia Holly Nutrition. And then I have my podcast, the Mindfulness-Based Weight Loss Podcast. And that's wherever you like to listen to podcasts, the podcast is there. Perfect. I'll put all those in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you.